0: Well, this morning we continue forward in chapter 13, which we look to complete together. We're continuing on with this wife of Abraham. Of course, he's not Abraham yet, he's still Abram. We've been careful to try to keep his name as it's stated in the text until God changes it. But we're taking steps toward that great promise, being made sure. And so we're looking at verses 14 through 18 together. This morning, and I want us to keep in mind what we've seen so far in this chapter as well as a little bit from chapter 12. We remember that God first called Abram. He called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, He dwelled in Haran. And from Haran, God called him to journey into the Promised Land. When he went into the Promised Land, there was a famine. After uh, after a time, there was a famine, and he traveled down to Egypt. Egypt. And God, despite all of Abram's schemes and hoped for manipulations, God delivered Abram, despite Abram. God was true to his promise, delivered him from the hand of Pharaoh. And as we saw last week, as Abram made his way back into the promised land, that time in Egypt came with consequences. It came with many possessions, which was a blessing, but those possessions caused strife between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. And so we concluded last week with Lot separating from Abram. Abram humbly said, look around, lift your eyes, name name the place you hope to dwell. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot chose poorly. He chose the wrong way, as we said last week. He chose to pitch his tents as far as Sodom. And the last verse we saw, verse 13, states the problem with that those who were in Sodom were sinful against the Lord. Wicked men. Evil in his sight. Abram chose the right way. We had in verse 12 that great contrast. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Abram was staying in the land that God had portioned to him. Abram chose the right way. And keep in mind everything that has happened between Egypt and Canaan. His walk has been impacted in a way that Lot's walk was not impacted. Lot still had a heart toward Egypt. Still had a heart toward provision, a fleshly heart that caused him very strategically to straddle the border between Canaan and Sodom. But again, Abram chose the right way. We saw last week, he was humbled by his deceitfulness, by his cowardice, by his lapse of faith. He recognized that nonetheless God had delivered him with a mighty deliverance. He recognized that though he was sinful, God was full of grace and compassion. And so he retraced his steps and there he sought to restore himself by worshiping. He restored himself, renewed his commitment to the Lord's promise and and he renewed his faith in the Lord's goodness. It, It equipped him to withstand temptation, even the temptation to dwell in the plains of the Jordan, to dwell toward Zoar, toward the land of Sodom. And then we have in our focus this morning will be verses 14 to the end of the chapter. God responds to Abram's response. Abram is back in the land, he's he's repented and he's worshipped the Lord again. And, And the result of that is he gives over to Lot to prevent strife between them. He gives over to Lot the choice and Lot departs. And then God, as it were, responds to Abram. He confirms the promise to Abram. He confirms the promise to Abram. And we see really three actions that are a part of these verses First, we see God saying, lift up your eyes and look. So there's this action of looking, of beholding. So that's the first action, look. The second action is, arise, walk. It's the second command. Lift up your eyes, look. Arise, walk. So we have this action of walking, walking in the land. And then the last action we see is, at the end of the, the chapter, Abram builds an altar to the Lord. What we've seen throughout is, when you have an altar being built, you have worship being conducted. So these are the three actions look, walk, worship. We're going to see how significant, I hope, that is, not only for Abram in this chapter, but for us as believers, as children of Abram, to look, walk, and worship. So, first, notice that Abram is called to look at the promise of God, looking at the promise. Verses 14-16, through The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. One little detail that we can't let escape our notice is how the Lord responds to Abram after Lot had separated from him. That's what the text says, after Lot had separated from him. We have to take a step back and realize how significant this departure has been. We can only imagine how difficult it would have been for Abram and Sarai to watch Lot, their beloved nephew, vanish over the horizon. Remember, we read a little detail that Abram's brother had died. Nahor had died. And from that time forward, even all the way back in Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram had become a father. And Lot had really become more than a nephew. He'd become a son to Abram. And then they dwelled in Haran together as God made his promise more concrete. And and Lot followed Abram like a dutiful son into the promised land. And when that hard time came, Lot uh, would have done what he could to help Abram provide for the herds and for the servants, and he followed Abram down into Egypt, and he was there as God delivered them from Egypt, and this whole time, there's been this bond, this familial bond. Lot's been more than a nephew. He's been there as God's dealt with Abram, from the highs to the lows, and now he's departed. You can imagine how sorrowful this must have made Abram feel. We've all had experiences like that, I trust, in our lives, where we've had have People that we love part ways. Friendships that, that grow distant, that grow apart. Relatives that uh, we're very close to that move away or perhaps pass away. Sons and daughters that grow up and move out. We can sympathize with how this must have made Abram felt. Remember that Abram and Sarai are childless. Sarai's barren. How special this relationship was. More than any servant, more than any prized possession, Lot was was truly one of the great joys of Abram's life. And this is a loss. It's a loss that he's experiencing. That great caravan is set out now, and there's a sense in which I won't won't see him. And he won't see me. And we're going to find out that that's not the case. Abram will come to the rescue in chapter 14. But again, just situate yourselves here. There's been this conflict, and now Lot's leaving, and Abram's really at a low ebb. And it's really only heightening his situation. Here he is. God has promised him an inheritance in this land, but he still has no heir. And now it's painfully clear that Lot is not going to be an heir. Lot is not going to be an adopted son. Now even that family's being broken up. And perhaps in the back of Abram's mind, he's thinking, you know, this would have never happened. I would would not have to separate from Lot and from all this love if I had stayed in the city of Haran. If I just hadn't come into this Desolate land, this famine land. If I just stayed in the city, we were were together and we did well. But I answered the call of God, and here I am, and now, look, Lot goes from me. So it's heightening the situation. Here he is, there's, there's little promise, right? Lot's leaving because there's something green in the plains of the Jordan. There's something green eastward. That's not true of where Abram is, but he's staying in the land. So so there's little promise of any provision in the immediate. There's there's little promise of an heir. Sarai's still barren. Now his closest one, a son figure, has departed from him. He's at a low ebb. This is a sorrowful exchange. But notice that Abram's resolve is firm. He's still responding to the promise of God. And now God responds to him. God, as it were, comes down and, and strengthens his resolve. Confirms his faith. Yes, you've trusted in me. You've trusted in my word. Lift your eyes now. Lift your eyes. As if he's been looking down, so sorrowful. Lots out from vision, and and here I am. Week after week. Month after month. Year after year. And Sarai's still barren. And the land is still desolate. And God's promise does not seem to be coming true. And God is here confirming His faith. Lift your eyes now. And look. Look look from the place where you are look northward look south look east look west do a 360. everything you see i am giving to you and to your descendants forever notice that god is acknowledging just how far from sight the promise of genesis 12 seems to abram and he says lift your eyes and look And notice that that's coupled with this next statement, from the place where you are. Lift your eyes and look from the place where you are. Now, I don't think that's just merely saying, oh, from this place you happen to be standing, look, as though he could look from some other place, right? What place could he look from but from the place where he's standing? There seems to be something a little more to what God is saying here. Look from the place where you are. Look from the place where you're standing, the place where you're walking. Look from where your heart is and where your mind is and where your anxieties are becoming a burden. Look deeply from where you are in your stance before me, before my face. Look from where you are. Lift your eyes and look up. Look. Look all around you. Look at the promise. It's as though God is saying to Abram, from the very place that you are, even though you cannot see everything around you, in this humble resolve you now have, in this despair you're feeling over a lot, while you're wrestling with belief mixed with unbelief, in your worry, but also in your hope, from that place, Abram, lift your eyes up and look. Behold. Look around you. Look from the place where you are to the land that I will give you. Look from where you are to what will come. This is how God gives promises to His people. I find this very instructive. God is condescending in a way to, first of all, acknowledge where Abram actually is, what state he is in, and then to lift him from that place. So He affirms and acknowledges where Abram is. Perhaps in his sorrow. Perhaps in in mingling, you know, lingering unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps that's where Abram was. And yet he's affirming this promise to him, even as Lot is going out of distance. If we could borrow the language of John Bunyan from Pilgrim's Progress, Abram sort of is the original Christian, isn't he? The original pilgrim. He's being called out of the city of destruction and he's traveling toward the celestial city. And we could almost say Egypt was Abram's slow of despond. You know, Just when he's in and, and he's on his way and then he gets, he gets trapped and he begins to despair, he had stumbled in his faith. But then the Lord delivered him and, and gave him strength and energy on his way forward and, and confirmed his promise so that Abram would look with eyes of faith even when that promise seemed far off. Notice that God is cultivating Abram's faith. Look from the place you are, now look all around you. I am giving this to you and to your descendants forever. He's now cultivating. We say that because he's taking a step further in his promise. He's giving a little more detail in his promise. And I notice that in our lives, God always seems to work in this way. He always confirms his truth, his promises to his people from the place his people are. He's calling you this morning from the place that you are, from where you are in relation to Him, in that place of perhaps mingling unbelief, in that place of perhaps sorrow or distance, dryness, or in a place of strength and zeal, and you're waiting for Him to to open a door, to, to shed new and stronger light on the path, and you can go forward from strength to strength. He acknowledges where you are when He affirms His promise and His will for your life. Notice then that God does not affirm you or confirm His promise to you from the place you think you are. He does not affirm Himself to the place you should be. He does not affirm His promise, His will for you unto Christ from the place you wish you were. He actually comes to where you are, from the place you're standing. Here is where God makes Himself known to you from the place that you are. And he repeats this promise. He cultivates this faith. The Lord said to Abram, remember back in chapter 12, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house. To a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then when he enters into the land, verse 7 of chapter 12, God says to your descendants I give this land, this land, and so he builds an altar there at Shechem. And then he journals between, journeys down between Bethel and Ai and then on down to the Negev. Remember, in 13, he's come back out of Egypt toward the Negev, back to settle between Bethel and Ai, and this is where this exchange is taking place. God does not simply repeat that promise. And the Lord reminded Abram of what he had said. No, he, he actually develops it. He expounds upon it. And first, it begins with looking, beholding. Look around you. He's going to do this again. This is just so fascinating, the way that God interacts with his people. He's going to come again when Abram's at a very low ebb. He's saying, look, my, my house is desolate. Eliezer is going to be my heir. The, the slave in my house is the closest thing I have to a child. And what does God do? He doesn't say, well, let me remind you of the promise I made back in chapter... No, he's, he's not there. He's not in chapter 12. What does God do? Abram, come outside. Come outside and what? Look. Look. Now it's not look northward, southward, eastward, westward. It's look at the stars of the heavens. Look up. So God wants Abram to begin framing his expectation of the promise by beholding, by looking, looking with eyes of faith. And he's expounding on this. God wants Abram to get a larger sense of the magnitude of his promise. Not just this land in some vague, indiscriminate sense, but as far as you can see in any given direction. That's the land I'm giving you. And then he's going to even go further than that. Walk around this land. Walk in this land. So there's further detail being given to the promise. And this is how the Lord works with his people, isn't it? This is a walk of faith, and there's a certain sense in which He progressively reveals His presence, reveals His truth to His people. We walk in obedience to what He has made known, and it seems that more light is shed along our path. This is part of the growth of sanctification in the Christian life, part of maturity. And so we're all at different places in our walks with the Lord here this morning. But, and from whatever place we are, as we respond to God by faith, And obedience, as the hymn would have it, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Now the hymn says to be happy in Jesus. Let's modify that a little bit. There's no other way to receive further light for the path. No other way to continue to grow. No other way to draw, be drawn closer into fellowship with Him. As we respond to God in faith and obedience, more light is shed on our path. We begin to know more of Him, more of His Word. We find His promises to be true, not because they come to our ears by precept, but we experience them. We experience the truth of His Word. We come to see and to know by experience His goodness, His power, His providence, His love. God is expounding this promise to Abram, and we have this beautiful picture. It's sort of the logic of Psalm 119, 105, isn't it? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Notice how the word here is is being used in this analogy of a journey. So the idea is that the worshiper is never at a standstill, waiting for everything else to become illuminated, but rather the word sheds light on a path, on a journey. Progressive revelation of God's word. We wish we could know it all up front, but God does not reveal Himself in this way. He does not reveal His Word in this way. He comes to the place where we are, and He affirms His promise from the place where we are. And we exercise faith in that Word. We obey that Word. We trust Him and walk with Him until He cultivates further, expounds further, draws us to the next realization or truth. And so Jesus says, for instance, to His disciples in John 16, good illustration of this, John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. How would you have liked to have been on the receiving end of that? If you, if you go home and tell your little five-year-old, I have many things to teach you, but you can, you're not able to bear them now, what does that five-year-old Tell me, tell me, please, tell me, tell me. So it's like, no, you literally cannot understand that. You need to live a life before you can actually receive some of these things. You're just not capable. You're too young. Your mind can't grasp the concepts. You haven't experienced things. I have so much to teach you. But you just got to trust and obey what I can reveal to you, what you are able to bear now. And that's just how it is with the Lord, isn't it? And so John 16, 12 is true for every Christian in this room. The Lord by His Spirit has many things, many things that He has yet to show us, yet to teach us yet to, to bear us up through, yet to guide us toward. We're just not able to bear them yet. We're not able to bear them yet. Isn't it wonderful to know that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth? That's a promise that God gives to His people. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. But He doesn't do that by a batch download, does He? I'm going to lead you into all truth. Here's the zip drive, all truth. And now I can, I can understand everything about God's will for my life. That's just not how it works, is it? It's sort of uh, this dialogue, this back and forth. This really is light being shed as you continue to take steps on this path. As you hide His word in your heart, line by line, precept by precept. This is how God moves in His people. We see that here, even with Abram. the The promise is now getting a little more color, a little more clarity. That's going to continue. More details more of an expounding of what it's going to look like. We're going to get to such detail, know this at this time, your children will be slaves in the land of Egypt. for you know? There's just more detail, more clarity that comes along with God's revelation. But what a, what a great encouragement to know the Lord has much to teach us, we're just not able to bear it. But we will be able to bear it because He has begun a good work in us and He's carrying it through. So mapped out in our lives are these successive stages of God furthering revelation, opening up illumination, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe what He will make known to us. We don't do this by our flesh. We do this by faith and obedience. And so that's why we say the Word is a means of grace. We become Bereans. We become students of the Word. We hide in our hearts. We order our lives around it. We want our lives to be characterized, shaped by the Word, so that God will continue to make known Himself through it. And this is God's way of leading Abram. Abram, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are to what I will give you. Notice it begins with looking. God is calling Abram to look, look, look. He doesn't say go, he says look. It's so fascinating to me that God begins with look, behold. In fact, I, an, I can't confirm this, I have not done a study on this, but I have an inkling that when God gives a promise, more often than not, it begins with some type of look or behold or I make known to you that we really begin our conception of what God is going to do by beholding it before we act on it, before we respond to it. So God can command his people to go, but when he gives a promise, it's behold, it's consider, it's look. Abram, look, don't slow down, just look. Take the time to look. Let this sink in. Look around you. Behold what my word is. Behold the promise. Look with eyes of faith all around you. This is what I'm going to give to you. It doesn't look like that from the place that you're standing. But look around you. Look to the heavens. Look to the earth. Don't take your eyes off my word. Don't depart from my promise. It is a sure promise because I am. And so yes, Lot's leaving, but Lot was never meant to be your heir. Remember the promise I gave to you from your loins. And God will again and again confirm this promise to Abram just as God again and again confirms His promise to us. Look, behold. I wonder, have we, have we come to church today and have we viewed this as a priority of our time? To just behold the promise of God. Behold what the Lord has done. To consider what the Lord is doing, what He will do. We all lean toward certain priorities in how we gather and why we gather. And truly, these all must be the case. We must, in a sense, gather to behold, to consider, to be moved by, to be, to be melted by a vision of who the Lord is, what He has done, what He will do. We're just meant to behold that. Don't act on it yet. Just behold it, consider it. be amazed by it. Worship as a response to it. but then, but then perhaps there's some of us that, yeah,' been there done that. Where We're looking for that new insight. We're looking for grist for the mill. I've come to learn. I've come to love the Lord God with my mind. And so I understand the behold, that's more looking with your heart. I, I've come to look with my mind. I I want to be renewed after a new knowledge. I want to, to gain insight and clarity in His Word. And, and so I, I, that's why I've come. That's my priority. And then others, well, I, I want to know what to do with that Word. I've, I've got hands. I've got feet. I've got a busy week. I've got a hungry family. What do I do with the Word? And so they've come, and they are come for the Word too. They've come to understand what to do with it, how to apply it. And you can never make everyone happy, right? Those that have come to behold, perhaps they say, Amen. What a wonderful service. Those come to learn to say, yeah, no, it was good. I just didn't really learn anything new. Those that came for application, oh, well, you know, I don't really know how to apply it. I kind of wish we got through to more application. Ideally, all of these are always the the three strands that are never broken. But I tend to think, in our setting, we minimize or marginalize the call just to behold. It's it's a modern worship song, and I, I just love the first line of it. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. What a great call to worship. What a great opener to worshiping God. Come, just behold. Behold the mystery that God took on flesh and died in a sinner's place. Died condemned in your place so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. Come, behold that wondrous mystery. The rest inevitably follows. So beholding is taking the same promise, but adding new color to new clarity, new warmth, new response to it. Come, behold, look. That's what we're saying. Lift up your eyes. Look. That's what God's people are to do. That's where we begin. I hope we'll see as we move forward this morning, there's this succession between looking, walking, and worshiping. Notice that the order begins with looking. Now what is Abram to look at as he looks around at all the land? This brings us to a a theological theme, and I just want to sow some seed here. If it doesn't mean a lot to you right now, that's okay. I'm just sowing some seed because in chapter 15, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this. When God points Abram to look at all the land, that little phrase, all the land, is pointing us all the way forward to Christ. Christ in His dominion. Look at all the land. This is the blessing of the nations in short form. Remember that God is expounding His promise in chapter 12. and Well, it seems like we've lost something, have we? It went from a promise of a seed, descendants, and a promise of a land that God's going to show. But what was this whole talk about God... Making Abram a blessing to all of the nations, to all of the peoples of the earth? Did that drop away here in chapter 13? We're just not going to deal with that? No. That's all being contained in this little phrase, all the land. Look at all the land. It's pointing us forward to the seed, the true seed. Not the immediate fulfillment, not the seed by the flesh, but the seed by promise, who is Christ and all that are in Christ. To this seed, God gives all the land. Don't take my word for it. Paul says the same thing in Romans 4.13 For the promise that Abraham would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now we're going to build on that, but I just want you to notice this little phrase. The promise that Abram would be the heir of the world. Wait a minute. Where did God say that Abram was going to be an heir of the world? He brought him to this land and said, I give you this land. Well, what is Paul picking up on? He's looking at this promise of all the land. And remember how he said our translation, our concept of the land is very different from the earth. And so the land is something very specific, and you can point to it in the Mediterranean basin on a map. But for the ancient conception, and in translation, there's no difference between the land or earth. It just depends on context. Does Haaretz mean the land or the earth? It depends on the context. God made the earth in Genesis 1-1, and then God gave the land. It's the same word. Notice what Paul is saying. Paul understands that this all the land is actually pointing to inheritance of the whole world. The promise that he would be heir of the world was his by faith. It didn't come through the law. It was given to him by faith. Now, look at how Paul explains this. Romans 4, verses 16 and following. Therefore, it is of faith so that it might be according to grace. The whole point is that Abram doesn't doesn't receive the grace of God as a reward for His obedience or as a a result of His law-keeping. He actually has the righteousness of faith. He receives it by grace. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Like looking around at a land and saying, I'm eventually going to have descendants that fill this and this is going to be my inheritance. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed. So that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Where's Paul quoting that from? He's quoting it from Genesis 13. Contrary to hope, in hope, Abram believes the promise of God. And because God's promise is that he can look in any direction and all the land will be his inheritance, here's where that promise of Genesis 12 comes right back to Genesis 13. This is how he becomes the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. I don't have it in my notes and I wish I did, but we'll get there in a few chapters anyway. Paul's taking this language out of Genesis 13. Abram's descendants being as the dust of the earth. And that's being run through Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1 is is this prophecy of destruction upon Israel. Of course, Judah and Israel are in God's sort of bullseye. And Hosea is called to prophesy judgment upon Israel. And Hosea begins by God calling the prophet, this holy man, to marry a harlot, to marry Gomer. And chapter 1 talks about the offspring of this relationship, of this marriage. Of course, the whole point was that God was like the righteous prophet marrying an unfaithful wife, Israel. And so each child carries a bit of this prophecy forward. And we read as a result of the promise, the descendants being like the dust. Quoting from Genesis 13 and Hosea 1, we read this prophecy that God is going to take those that He had called His people. lo me is born. lo me. Those who are not My people. And He's going to call them my people. Paul takes this right over into Romans 9 when he's talking about Israel and and how Israel relates to the promise and the covenant of God. And he talks about how Gentiles are now heirs of the promise. And he quotes from Hosea 1, which quotes from Genesis 13, and he says, as it is written that these Gentiles would be heirs, as it is written, God will take those who are my people and make them not my people. And those who were afar off that were not My people, there, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So Genesis 13 reverberates throughout Scripture. The promise given to Abram here might be immediately fulfilled through the flesh, but its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate reality, is the seed who is Christ, the heir Of all the world, Jew and Gentiles from every tribe and tongue being brought into the kingdom of this blessed Son of promise. That's what we have going on here in this promise. It's all contained with, look, lift your eyes and look, all the land I give to you. We have a promise about Abram's seed contained within that, to your descendants, to your seed. Now, it's another thing about Hebrew. Sometimes you have... uh, A form that can be plural or singular and sometimes it's indistinguishable. You have a singular that's translated as plural because the concept is singular even though the form is plural and that happens to be how descendants or seed is translated. It's singular in form but often has a plural meaning as in English seed. If I say give me that seed do I mean one seed or a bag of seed? I don't say give me that bag of seeds necessarily i could just say give me the seed or look at your seed has prospered that could be plural or singular so it is in hebrew but paul makes a theological point the promise here in genesis 13 is to the seed to the descendants or to the descendant so we've said there's an immediate fulfillment through israel but that's only a placeholder the ultimate fulfillment the yes and amen of all of god's promises is christ himself and notice this language from Galatians 3. Again, not, not to uh, use a pun, but we are just sowing seed for a few more chapters. So if this is kind of unclear and not clicking, that's the point. I just want to introduce it so that it's in your wheelhouse over the next few months. Galatians 3, 16. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. If you're reading a translation like mine, that seed has a capital S. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. Galatians 3, 7 and following. Therefore know that only those who are of faith sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying in you all the nations shall be blessed so that those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham do you see how this promise brings us all the way forward to Christ because the promise is Christ In Genesis 12, God wasn't just making a covenant with Abraham. He was preaching the gospel to Abraham. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Because those who have faith are the true seed, the true children of Abraham. And Abraham's true seed, capital S, is Christ. And so that double entendre is loaded with significance. We are the true seed of Abraham because we are in the seed. We are in the true son of promise. We are in Christ. In Christ we become heirs by grace, by this faith in which we stand. The covenantal promises, I hope you can see, are just beautifully expounded, and they're all delicately woven in Genesis 12, 13. we get to 15, there'll be even more detail on this. And we'll spend more time considering that. But notice that all of this is unloaded by the sheer grace of a sovereign God. Abram, Paul argues, has only received it by faith. God has come to him, said, this is what I'm going to do to you. This is what I'm going to give to you. This is what I will make you. And all Abram does is believe God and thereby has the righteousness which comes by faith. It does not come because Abram's responded in a certain way that made God favorable to him or he somehow earned something because he's just so unique and so lovely of a man. No, this is just sheer sovereign grace. And notice that when Abram's at a low ebb and he's coming back from Egypt and Lot's left him, God says, lift up your eyes. Look, 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 behold my promise. Secondly, we see, and briefly we see, Abram walking in the promise I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Now we've seen Abram walking with God. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 5.24, Enoch was one who walked with God. This was a shorthand way of saying someone knew God and fellowshiped with God and believed God. But God's not saying walk with me. He's saying walk in my promise. Walk in the land that I'm giving to you. Walk as though it's already yours because I am giving it to you. There's a a Jewish commentator, Jonathan Sarna, who points out there's there's sort of a remedy for this in Jewish law uh, back in the Second Temple period called Hazakah where you would lay claim to something by this very act, by, by walking and encompassing a land. You were laying claim to it. That's what Abram's doing in light of this promise. Notice that we've gone from looking to walking. First, Abram beholds, and now he responds. First, he, he sees, and then he acts. We've gone from looking to walking. And that's very instructive for the Christian life. We first consider, we first See, we behold the goodness of the Lord. We taste and see His goodness, His beauty, His glory. Our hearts being radiated by that renewed mind become soft and and therefore our affections begin to drive our will. Now, because we've beheld, we're able to walk. How different Abram continues to walk from this point forward. If he was walking back sheepishly, and embarrassed, humiliated, guilty when he was crossing from Egypt back into the Negev. How different he's walking now. Look, look at what I'm going to do for you. Did you have any doubt that my love for you had lapsed? That my promise now would be foiled? That I'd be hindered and my arm would be shortened from doing all that I promised for you? Go, walk, walk. Now he's walking in strength. Now he's walking in zeal. He does so because he first beheld The promise of God and so I wonder brothers and sisters if so often in our lives we begin to walk out of duty out of a sense of this is what I'm supposed to do or I might catch flack if I'm not doing this and we do that without ever beholding we never consider we never look so often we don't open up the means of grace we don't bless it by prayer we just walk no wonder we walk around so fatigued. We go not from strength to strength, but from weakness to weakness. We haven't actually tasted the Lord, seen His goodness, resolved ourselves in His promise, recognized all that He has done, and therefore been steeled in the fact that He's continuing to do this. The promises of the land are not even close to being fulfilled. There's Canaanites and Parasites in the land, Abram is now weakened in a sense because Lot and all the possession of Lot have departed from him. He's now traveling through this land. There could be hostile peoples all around. He's walking around claiming it as his. We know that the promises of the land are not ultimately fulfilled in Abram's day. They're not even ultimately fulfilled in Joshua's day. They're not even ultimately fulfilled in David's day. They're being presently fulfilled in the greater son of David's day. I give to you the earth as your inheritance. This enthronement language. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Today I have begotten you, 2 Samuel 7. Today I have made you my son. Lo, I give you the earth as your inheritance. Reign until I make your enemies your footstool. This was, this was the confidence of the early Christians when they were gathered in huddles in the catacombs while the persecution of Domitian was, was raging over the streets above them and they were huddled in worship confessing Christ's enemies are being made his footstool. That's what Christians are doing in North Korea this morning or in underground churches and living rooms and basements in Beijing this morning. They're confessing this reality that this great promise is being presently fulfilled through Christ in a dominion that will know no end. God's covenant continues to expand until the earth is filled with His glory. This is what it means to walk in the promise of Christ. We walk in the promise, just as Abram's walking in the promise. Walking though you cannot see it. Does it look to you under the administration in the present state of our culture when evil is called good and good is called evil, and boys are girls and girls are boys, and everything that's abominable is not only tolerated but paraded around? Does that look to you like the enemies of God are being made His footstool? Yet we look, and we walk, and we worship. We see this with eyes of faith. We know the promise is sure. We first behold so that we can walk, and we we walk this out. We walk this out. Our lives are conducted according to the surety of Christ's dominion, according to the promise of God's Word. My life, therefore, must be conducted because Christ is Lord. He is Lord. And so I live my life accordingly. We gather and we worship accordingly. Christ is Lord. That has been the millennium of confession for Christians. Jesus is Lord. And when you say Jesus is Lord, you say Caesar is not jesus is lord is not this little personal relationship i have with him i don't keep my hands off and say oh he can be your little narrow savior your your sort of wish fulfillment for whatever you hope might work out in your life you know times get hard you need a support system there jesus is a really good support system for your ambitions no jesus is lord this this promise therefore is meant for us to walk in Walk in the reality of it. Walk out of the truth of it. Walk in the blessedness of it, in the joy of it, you see. We walk in the promise by faith, with eyes of faith. We experience His blessing and His blessedness. And then we worship. We look, we behold. We're stirred by, moved by, gripped by, convicted by. Move to repentance by looking, beholding, and then we walk. We walk in the repentance. We walk in the fruit of repentance. We walk according to the truth, the light, the blessedness, the glory, the hope, the joy, the peace, the unity, the love, the zeal, the strength, the honor, the glory. We walk according to the promise and we worship. Now we've made it to worship here, and that's verse 18. Abram moved his tent, went, dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram's building a lot of altars. And Hebrews picks up very importantly that he's not building a city. He doesn't build it here. The only possession that he actually takes is near Hebron. It's the field of Machpelah where he buries Sarai, his wife. That's truly on paper or in legal terms his possession but he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is god and notice he again builds an altar he's not even dwelling between bethlehem but there's an altar there he's not dwelling near shechem but there's an altar there and here's an altar in hebron everywhere abram goes he he worships the lord he's he's beholding the promise of god walking in the reality of it and worshiping god and notice that this whole cycle then repeats Because where do we find Abram just a few verses before verse 14? Building an altar and calling upon the name of the Lord. So, look, walk, worship continues back to look, walk. Where do you look but in worship? Abram is worshiping God between Bethel and I. And because he's looking, he then beholds that promise of God and he walks... And then he built another altar and worships. Now what is he doing? He's looking and beholding. And what is he going to do? He's going to walk. And as he walks, what is he going to do next? He's going to worship. And as he worships, what is he doing? He's looking. He's beholding. Being moved by. And then what does he do? He walks. Do you see? Does this sound cyclical to you? This sounds like the Christian life to me. Look. Walk. Worship. Repeat. This is the Christian life. More light, Lord show me any unpleasing way within me more light more presence more power more effectiveness more consistency more holiness more zeal more hunger more strength more compassion more hope i love the little details Uh, to us, the oaks of Mamre, what is it? it means nothing to us, right? The Hebron, is, you know, sounds familiar, it's very important later on in David's reign. Mamre, Hebron, what do these mean? We don't know exactly the origins, whether these are names that Abram gives to these places, and so Moses is sort of recounting what they were called from Abram's day, or whether this, these names already existed. But Mamre translates to fatness. Now, in our day and age, fatness is sort of a bad thing. (laughs) Fatness is a very good thing in the ancient Near Eastern mindset. Fatness is abundance. Fatness is is riches and wealth and honor. Fatness is feasting. It's being overly blessed and overly abundant. And so by these great oak trees of Mamre, and it could just be that you have these terebinth trees, just like Shechem, and they're associated with abundance. And Hebron which translates to fellowship or communion. Again, we don't want to read too much into that, but aren't these little places such a great picture of what Abram's doing right now? Just communing with God and just the abundance of God's goodness to him? Do you think Abram really feels like he's walking through a famine-scarred land and he's just sort of despairing and wondering, will this ever be? Not here. His faith is so fixed upon the Lord that that his communion with God is looking with eyes of faith at the promise. He's he's just dwelling in the abundance of it. Just like our brothers and sisters in Sudan or in Iran or in North Korea or Beijing this morning, do you not know that they're smiling and they're filled with abundance as they worship the Lord, as they commune with Him by His Spirit? They don't feel as though They've been deceived and they're, of all men, fools. And they're the off of all things. They, they feel as though they've found the fatness. They've found the abundance in their communion with God. Because they're looking. And they're walking. And they're worshiping. Abram doesn't even own land in Canaan yet. He doesn't even have a child yet. His wife is still barren and yet... He's communing with God and experiencing that abundance of God just by looking at him through faith. And so that's why he moves his tent around. He builds these altars. These are going to last, but he just moves his tent around. He won't even put a roof over him. He still is going to dwell in a tent. He's going to live like a refugee, live like a nomad, as he communes with God in the surety of his promise, as he calls upon the name of God. Building an altar to the Lord. A life lived in communion with God. A life that God is blessing and will continue to bless. And God's desiring for all of His people to come to that place where we commune with Him and experience that abundance and have that peace of His presence in our lives, that joy of of His goodness overflowing to us. He wants us to acknowledge Him. To look. To walk out in response to that. He wants to be exalted. Exalted. He desires such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Everyone dwells in a world just like Abram and Lot dwelt in the world. Lot went east. Lot chose what was pleasing to his sight. Abraham chose by faith. He chose to stay in Canaan and not find something better. God responded to him and he responded to God in obedience and faith. Looking. Walking. Worshiping. And and we find this Maybe in some ways true of the Christian life in Ephesians 3. Where we're looking and walking and worshiping are all contained between Ephesians 3:16 and the beginning of chapter 4. I'll just point this out to you. Paul is, is praying that the Ephesians would be refreshed in their in their dedication to God and their ministry for God. And so Paul prays that He, that is God, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. What is north and south and east and west. Look and behold at the love of Christ. Which passes all knowledge, so that what? So that you'll be filled. So that you'll look and, and be filled with the fullness of God. So that what? For one, that you will walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Look, walk. And then you would gather in unity and worship, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with all the saints you're worshiping with. Looking, walking, worshiping. This is the Christian life. And so even this morning, a vast, innumerable seed are being called in the true heir in Christ, being made joint heirs with him from every corner of the world. The seed of Abram, the fulfillment of the promise, what he could only see afar off. We are the beginnings, the first fruits of the fulfillment of that. And even then, it does not yet appear, as Scripture says, what we shall be. And so we too, we we live by faith. We look at what God has done, what He's promised He will do. We walk in the reality of that, in the light of that. And we worship as a response to that. We worship for it. We worship from it. We worship because of it. We worship in hope of it. The seed of Abram is now seated on a throne that has everlasting dominion. And we're called to be like Abram, humbling ourselves in meekness, trusting in what God has revealed, walking in that communion, in that abundance, in the fatness of God's glory. You know, glory, kabod, is weight in the fatness of the weight of God, if you could put it that way. We know that in Christ, we're already more than conquerors by His life and His death. Let us therefore walk worthy of that calling. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for just the glory of Your Word, Lord. We think of the the amazing grace and that line from Amazing Grace, Lord, that You have promised good to us in Your Word our hope secures. We think of How Paul begins Ephesians with the the great inheritance that we've obtained already in Christ. Having these promises, as 2 Corinthians 7 says, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh. Lord, give us Your Spirit that we might commune with You in deeper ways. Help us to behold not not to rely upon our strength, not to look with the eyes of flesh at what seems to be the best course forward, like Lot. But with eyes of faith, let us just behold who You are. What You have done. What You're presently doing in us, through us. What You're doing all over the world today. And then, what You've promised You will do. What is true. Let us walk in the reality of that. Walk, therefore, in the delight of that. Worship, Lord, in the beauty and the truthfulness of it. Let our whole lives be characterized by these three actions successively as you shed more light on our path for us to behold, for us to walk in, for us to worship from. You are a good and holy and sovereign God. We are weak, needy, fickle, and stiff-necked. Help us, Lord. I pray if there is one in this room that has not known you, that has not been called according to your promise, Lord, that is a stranger to your grace, that you would bring them near even now, Lord. Convict their hearts. Bring them to a saving knowledge of your Son, who is the eternally blessed one. In his name we pray. Amen.